Well, if you have your Bibles, I would uh, encourage you to take those out and turn with me to uh, the book of 1 Kings. And while you're doing that, if you simultaneously want to get your core guide out and uh, place on the front of that for you to take some notes, things you might want to remember about today's message. And then, of course, on the inside, there's the devotionals that help you walk through the week, staying in the Word, and um, kind of on uh, topics and themes that are similar to what we discuss here on Sunday mornings. And uh, we, have been, we are the third week into our series on Elijah, and we'll be in chapter 18 today. Last week, we kind of skipped forward, and so we already looked at chapter 19. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we were in chapter 17, and, and Elijah's story is, it's not a real long story in, in Scripture. In fact, it, it happens in just a few short chapters, and, and so we were introduced to Elijah two weeks ago. He kind of enters into the narrative story at the beginning of chapter 17. Uh, he kind of just drops out of nowhere, and uh, God had asked him to go confront or go tell King Ahab. And uh, if you remember, Ahab, in the, the long line of kings, the evil kings in the history of the northern kingdom, or what we call Israel, during, when uh, Israel was divided into two countries, uh, there were like 19 consecutive kings that were evil. And Ahab fell right in the middle uh, of that long line of kings. And in fact, the, the biblical narrative tells us that Ahab, was, he did so much evil in the sight of the Lord, he, he surpassed everybody else before him. Most evil king ever. God says to Elijah, I want you to go talk to that guy. And I want you to tell him that there's going to be a drought that's in the land. And so that, that's how really how we're introduced to Elijah. He goes, he tells King Ahab, this is what the Lord says, there's going to be a drought. And then immediately from that uh, episode, Elijah goes out into the wilderness. We talked about him going out to this ravine called Kareth Ravine, and, and Kareth, the name just simply means to be cut down to size. And so God had some work to do in Elijah's life, and so he steps in, he does a little bit of ministry, and then God says, you know, I need you to go out, I, I want you to go spend some time in the wilderness because I, I need to teach you some things. And then after he was at the ravine, then God said, I need you to go to Zarephath. And, and Zarephath, if you remember, that, that word, that name means a place of refining. So God's work in Elijah's life wasn't done yet, even after a time in the wilderness. Now God has him go and minister to a widow and her son and bless them and and demonstrate the Lord's provision, and it was further refining in Elijah's life. And so, you know, we had this little ministry episode where he makes this confrontation with the king, and then he, and then he kind of disappears uh, out into the wilderness, and then he goes and, and uh, stays with this widow, and about three years goes by, and there's this severe drought in the land. And the word of the Lord comes back to Elijah, and, and, and God says, okay, uh, I need you to, to go talk to Ahab again. And, uh, and Ahab, you know, this is the evil king. He was married to Jezebel. We've heard that name before. And Jezebel had lured Ahab away from worshiping the one true 
God because she was uh, a foreigner and, and she, um, she worshipped a god called Baal and a goddess, uh, Asherah, and she really didn't have want much to do with. In fact, she tried to rid the earth of God's prophets. So this is an evil woman married to an evil man, and together they just led the country on a spiral down. It's not that Ahab did not believe in God, it's just that he became tolerant, and he's like, you know what? I mean, choose your, you have, have a God of your own choosing. And so it's not like he dismissed Yahweh altogether, but he really wasn't focusing on him. And, and in that, the people watched that from their leadership, and, and, and they begin to uh, stray away as well. And so um, you know, God's asked Elijah to go back and, and talk to Ahab again. And if you think about it, the drought really was something that attacked Baal, right? I mean, right at the center of what Baal was supposed to be good at. I mean, he was a fertility god, and he was supposed to be the one who was um, in charge of producing the rain that watered the crops so that they would grow and, and there would be food and, and people uh, would be able to live. And so closing up the skies and, and shutting off the, the water spigot in this drought was kind of this flat-out affront to the power of of Baal, a challenge for him to rise up and, and to prove himself. And so uh, God says, go back. Tell Ahab that I'm about to send rain on the land. And uh, so Ahab, or, or Elijah goes on his way, and, and on his way, he runs into this guy named Obadiah. Now, Obadiah worked in the king's court. And Obadiah was a, a God-fearer. He had a secular job, if you will, but he was able to influence um, people around him in a kind of a behind-the-scenes way. And, and Scripture tells us that he was able to hide a hundred of God's prophets in a, in a cave and take care of them with, with his own means. And, and so kind of his uh, rebellion, if you will, against Ahab was to protect God's prophets and so Elijah runs into this guy named Obadiah, and he says, hey, I need to talk to Ahab. And Obadiah's like, I don't know if I should do that, because he might kill me. And uh, because if, if you don't show up, I'm, I'm toast. Elijah says, I promise. I promise. I'll show up. And so th that's kind of the narrative from 17 into the very first part of chapter 18. And, and so I want to read the rest of this episode to you. So if if you would stand with me, we're in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. I'm going to read starting in verse uh, 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? The Hebrew language is much more descriptive than troubler of Israel. Essentially what uh, Ahab calls Elijah is a snake in the grass. You snake in the grass. And Elijah responds, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word 
throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, "'Come here to me.' And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sayas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I was uh, doing a little studying this week, and I came across a, uh, I came across an article that was more just like a little chart that got my attention. And it was it's published by uh, the Pew Research Company, and uh, it it was simply titled "Religion in Everyday Life." So I'm curious about those things. What is religion in everyday life? look like. And of course, Pew does all sorts of surveys and, and publishes statistics and so forth. So I was intrigued. And, and so I looked a little closer, and, and so the little sub-sentence, the little descriptor of the article, it read this. It said, 
highly religious Americans are happier and more involved with family, but... It's never good when there's a but like after that sentence, you know? But are no more likely to exercise, recycle, or make socially conscious consumer choices. Hmm, that's interesting. In other words, uh, religion has a place for Christians in our culture, but it is kind of confined to very specific parts of our lives. And in some cases, it's totally excluded from, from other parts of our lives. You know, these are, um, these are people who would say or would, would think things some, some uh, along the line of, you know, Jesus and me, we're, we're kind of tight. You know, I, I, love, I love Jesus. I love him. But I only want to be saved. You know, that's about as far, you know, that love relationship with Jesus, you know, that's so that I have, you know, that insurance card with me. So at the end, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be with him for eternity. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into heaven. But along the way, I, you know, I kind of really want to do it my own way. I want to I make my own choices. I want to participate in all the stuff that's, that's cool and out there and, and all my friends are, are doing it. I, I want to I be tight with Jesus, but... Yeah, I don't think he knows too much about what's really going on in my life. And so you might say that Christians who want the benefits of Christianity uh, without taking on the obligations and the responsibilities of following Jesus, going where he goes, doing what he does, and so forth, um, so people who want the benefits without the obligations, you kind of call those nominal Christians. So people who are Christians in name only. Yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll take on that name of Jesus, um, but we don't really want the responsibility of what it means to carry that name. We don't really want to change how we think, and we definitely don't want to change how we live. Those would, would be a class of Christians called nominal Christians in name only. And so this, there's statistics in this article that, uh, that really got my attention. And they kind of painted the picture of this. Now, I'm kind of a numbers geek, and so I love statistics. But I also realize that statistics, you know, numbers, you can, you can manipulate numbers to make them say pretty much anything you want to say. Uh, but, but these, I think, tell a pretty um, accurate story of the picture of Christianity uh, in our land. So I want you to remember, as I go through a couple of these, um, that these are numbers based on a survey of people who claimed to be Christians. So these are Christ followers. These are believers. So this, this would be a survey of, of us, okay? And so the percentages that I'm going to give you are, these are the percent of Christians who say that the following things are an essential part of being a believer, an essential part of being a Christian, okay? So belief in God right? That's, that's top of the list. That was the highest percentage, that people who say they're Christians should believe in God. But you know what got my attention was only 86% of people who claim to be Christians said that believing in God was actually necessary, an essential part of being a follower. 86%, really? I mean, that's a high number, but 14% of us say that you can be called a Christian and you don't have to believe in God. 
So, and then it goes from there. It goes uh, practicing forgiveness. Jesus talked about that, right? It, that's in the book. Forgiveness is all over in the book. Uh, 69% of us believe that we should practice forgiveness. Being honest. There's something about honesty in here too, right? 67%. Praying on a regular basis, 63%. Serving the poor and the needy. In other words, acts of service, demonstrating Jesus' love to other people, only half of us believe that that's an essential part of, of being a follower of Jesus. Uh, reading the Bible, 42%. Attending church, worship service, 35%. Protecting the environment, 22%. Living a healthy lifestyle, only 18%. And practicing Sabbath, 18%. That's a pretty telling story, isn't it? I mean, I read that, that wrecks me. Because I, I see that. And, and when something where I have anecdotal evidence that would suggest those numbers are right, and then to actually see a survey that, that studies those and says, yeah, that, that's right, that just kind of wrecks me. But I'm not really surprised when, when, I, when I look around. Because I, and then I look at, okay, help me, Lord. Remind me of what you require. And I, I am reminded of passages like Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, when, when we're instructed, it says, what does, what does God require of you? I mean, isn't that the question we all want to know? God, what do you want from me? Well, it's in, it's in the book. He says to act justly. I want you to love mercy, and I want you to walk humbly with your God. That's what God requires of us, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. And then we read what, what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 22, and, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's, the, you know, that's like the first and greatest commandment. But the second one is just like it. It says to love your neighbor as yourself. So based on these statistics, this, I know it's only one survey, but I'm guessing that it probably doesn't surprise you. It might wreck you a little bit to think that, wow. So based on these uh, numbers, I'm not convinced that we actually believe what we're reading because it's not netting itself in changed behavior, changed thought. Nominal. I love Jesus, but you know I'm gonna I'm I'm just gonna do my own thing. So my natural question is why is this? What got us to this point? What provokes us to say one thing and, and do another? And, and I think our story answers that question. I think our story helps us unpack that a little bit. So we pause for, you know, for that for a moment and look at our story. The, the people in Elijah's day thought they were religious. You know, and for the most part, they, they were religious. 
the problem that Elijah was fighting against uh, was that the people of God who had once professed to be monotheistic. Do you know what monotheistic means? That means having one God, one, only one true God. You know, when he gave us the Ten Commandments, as you shall have no other gods before me, that's monotheism. I have one God. So Elijah was talking to a people who had once professed to be a monotheistic people, but they were practicing polytheism. So they had multiple gods that they were serving, multiple gods that they would pray to. And in a polytheistic culture, there's a God for everything. So if you needed healing, you would pray to one specific God. If you, needed, if you wanted to make sure that your crops grew and you had a good harvest at the end of the season, you prayed and gave that up and asked for another God to help you. If you wanted safety and travel, whether it was uh, uh, on the ground or by sea, then you would find another God and you would make a petition to that specific God and so on and so on and so on through out life. That's polytheism. You have a different God for pretty much everything. So the country at the time of Elijah was, was sort of divided. There were some people who were still trying to hang on to this idea of monotheism. We have, I mean, God led us out of Egypt. He is our God. And yet they lived in a culture where their king was saying it was okay and were setting up altars to all these other pantheon of Canaanite gods. And, and so there was this division in the land, and they were kind of confused because some people said, no, God only, and other people were like, no, we like all this other stuff. And so the, in a polytheistic culture, you know, the, to, to worship Baal, there were all sorts of, you know, magical charms and sexual rituals and worship, and, and some people just absolutely detested those things, where on the other hand, there were some people that, wow, that's, you know, I like that. I'm going to serve all these other gods because it just, there was some allure to that that just spoke to their, you know, most primitive instincts, and so there's this division in the land. There were many, many of the people who found it easier to um, to worship an idol that they could see, that they could physically see, than, than worship a God whom they couldn't see. The people had forgotten what God required of them. They had been desensitized to the wider culture that was all around them, and they, and they just let it in and said, you know what, it's not that bad. We can have multiple gods. That, that's the culture that Elijah is talking to here. And I know that sometimes it's difficult for us to connect with biblical stories because we, you know, we read the text and we think, you know, and that's a couple thousand years ago. I mean, society has moved on so much from, from that time and place that I don't know if the Bible's actually still relevant to the here and now. How does the Word of God told in, in the social structure of people 2,000 years ago relate to me today. And I'm going to go out a limb, on a limb here, and I'm going to say that we're living in the exact same way, the exact same way of the people that Elijah confronted. Exactly. We claim to be monotheistic, but we're entrenched in a polytheistic culture that's leading us astray. And what I mean when I say that, what I, what I mean is that we believe in one true God, but many of us live polytheistic lives. Um, there are false gods 
all over the place that have gained our attention and are luring us away. And they're promising things to us that only the one true God can actually provide. The false gods around us will promise uh, happiness and security and fulfillment and love and acceptance and strength and success and on and on. Then all the false gods make these promises and they say that if you bow down and worship them, then they'll give you all of these things that you'll live a much happier and better life. That's what the false gods tell us. And when I say false gods, I'm not talking about little gold statues that you'd put on a shelf. I'm I'm talking about things like money, bank accounts, retirement accounts. I'm talking about your desire to be popular and to fit in with those around you and, you know, just be the life of the party. I'm I'm talking about your... um, insistence on having the best physical image, you know, spending hours on end in the gym, and you just got to have your look just right. Some people worship that kind of stuff. I'm talking about sexuality. I'm talking about the collection of material things that, that just lead us astray, and we accumulate because we think that it's going to make us happier, and you know what? You buy one thing, and oh, I guess it didn't make me as happy as I thought, so then we're off to the next thing. I'm, I'm talking about the false gods of... Um, you know, cars and houses and gadgets and sports and all the other things that, that just are right in front of us. And you could say that the false gods are, the idols that we serve are, are anything that we put in the place where God should, should be. That God is the rightful place, and, and instead, of, instead of God being in that place, we, we elevate something else over and above it. That's what it means to serve a false god. That's what it means to, to fall into idolatry. And so I just challenge you, what are the idols in your life right now? And be honest with yourself. Don't think you don't have a problem. We, we all have some idolatry of some sort that's going on in our life. And I would ask that you think about it carefully and quietly and let God point out what you have elevated over and above him. And don't deny it. Don't dismiss it. Don't rationalize it. Don't justify it. Confess it when he points it out to you. God called, um, God called Elijah to confront the people on their blatant idolatry. He asked the people to repent and turn back to God. He wanted a revival to come across the land, and he wanted to begin in the hearts of the people of Israel. And he tells the people, you have to choose. You have to choose. Verse 21, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. You can't hobble around thinking that both are God. You have to pick one or the other. Don't waver between two opinions. Don't be double-minded. You know, you can't walk a fence on this one. The road forks, and you can only walk in one direction. So if you're, if you're going to go down the path of Baal, just go all in with Baal. If you're going to say that God is the one true God, then go down the path with God. You're, you're at a decision point. One, one or the other. You can't have both. 
So what Elijah would say to us is, quit being a Christian on Sunday and a heathen the rest of the week. Elijah would say, quit claiming Jesus while you're living like you don't know him. That's what, if Elijah was standing here in front of us, that, that's what he would look out at us, and he would evaluate our lives, and he would just call us out, and it would hurt a bit, because he would be right. Quit saying this and practicing this. This religious pluralism, this polytheism that's going on, it's just not okay. Obey the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. So the first point, if you're writing down points, I, would, I guess I could put it into words that, the, that there is one true God and you have to decide. So Elijah, he proposes this contest with the prophets of Baal and in front of the people. And, and so he has this, uh, this uh, thing set up. They're both going to come out to the base of this mountain and they're going to both set up altars and do a sacrifice. And the God who answers by fire is, is, uh, is going to be deemed the winner. And so the people are assembled and, and they're going to be uh, the, the witnesses. They're the jury in this, if you will. And, uh, and they people like this idea. Yeah, let's have a contest. We'll figure this out once and for all because we think it's going to be Baal. And uh, so Elijah, in setting this up, he gave every, every possible advantage to Baal. I mean, he, he, uh, Baal had home field advantage on this one because they're at Mount Carmel. This is, you know, Canaanite territory. This is, this is the heart and soul of Baal worship in the land. This is... Um, this is not a rigged contest by any stretch of the means. It's on Baal's territory. There's not going to be any cheating. There's not going to be Spygate. This is not at Foxborough Stadium. Elijah doesn't have any special effects rigged up on the mountain at all, that, you know, to have the fire just hit in just the right place. Elijah's playing a road game here. And just, and just to make sure that everybody knows that it's not rigged, he says, you go first. You go first. There's 450 of you, only one of me. Why don't you call in your God and you get the first crack at the contest? Now, that's a bold move because not only was Baal um, kind of responsible for the weather and the rain, he's this fertility God, but he was kind of known as the Lord of Fire. And he was known as the Lord of Fire because he was depicted as, you know, carrying around a lightning bolt in his hand. And so, you would think a guy with a lightning bolt in his hand would just be able to go boom and light that sacrifice on fire. So that's kind of risky, you know, if, because if, if for some reason some, you know, this, we're in a drought, right? So it's dry, it's hot, you know, everything's all like, you know, tinder and kindling. And, and if there was any small spark or spontaneous combustion of anything, the contest is over Elijah is deemed the loser. God's out of the, the equation for the people. And Elijah probably pays with his life. So letting him go first, that's, that's kind of a big risk. So contest starts. They begin praying to Baal, answer us, answer us. Nothing, ha nothing happened. And they danced and they shouted and there's still nothing. And, and <laughs> I love this part. Elijah begins to taunt them. You know, like poke him a little bit. You need a little trash talk going on the field here. And uh, he says, uh, come on, you know, what's going on? Maybe you have to shout louder. That's what Elijah says. Surely he's a God. You know, hey, 
he's a god. He's you know probably occupied with something. You gotta just wake him up, shout louder. And then he says, um, maybe Baal is daydreaming or meditating, or you know maybe he's off in some trance-like state. Is kind of what the Hebrew uh, word suggests. And then my the second one is kind of my favorite one. It says, or maybe he is busy. Some translations will say he stepped out for a moment. You know what the euphemism is there? That Baal is out behind uh, or sitting on some celestial porta potty out in the sky somewhere. It's, I mean, it's like he's relieving himself. That's what the Hebrew says right there. So he's either, you know, daydreaming or, you know, he's uh, out behind the tree or then Elijah goes, well, maybe, you know what, maybe he's just gone on vacation. So he's off cruising the islands of Hawaii, or he's, you know, some on Disney cruise ship and, you know, yucking it up with Goofy and, and uh, Donald Duck. And, and, uh, and then he says, well, maybe, no, you know, maybe he's taking a nap. You know, maybe he's got a siesta going, and you're going to have to shout so loud that you've got to wake him up. Come on. So they, the people, they get into this feverish feverish pitch, and they're dancing, and they're screaming, and they're shouting, and now they start cutting themselves, because, you know, if you get a little blood in the water, maybe that'll attract Baal and give him whatever power he needs to make the fire happen on this altar. Kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, kind of reminds me of a scene from the Avengers. You ever seen the movie Avengers? And Loki, the kind of the bad guy in the movie, he, he, there's this one scene where he and Hulk are kind of facing off, and, and Loki says, enough, you are, all of you are beneath me, I am a god, you dull creature, I will not be bullied by, and he gets cut off because Hulk just picks him up and goes, bam, 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 and then he says, puny god. I think that's what exactly what Elijah is thinking in this moment, he's watching this whole charade of these prophets of Baal who are trying to get his attention just to get a little spark to set the sacrifice on fire. And I think all along, Elijah is thinking, yeah, puny God. But you know what? In that story, we have fun with that and laugh at it, and, and rightly so, because I think there's a little bit of humor in the text, but there's a deadly serious point in here. And the point that's in this little mocking, taunting episode is that sometimes in life we have to look around and we have to look at the, the false gods that we've elevated into the rightful place of God, and we just have to taunt them and mock them for the the powerless nature that they actually are. They cannot affect any change in our life. And we have to call out these false gods and just say, puny God, get out of my life. I have no right, I have no right to be elevating this over and above the one true God. So then it's Elijah's turn. He sets the stage, lots of pageantry, soaks the altar, and then he prays, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that the people will return to you. That's his simple prayer, and God answers immediately, and God answers powerfully, 
and fire falls from the sky and consumes the sacrifice. It not only consumes the sacrifice, the bowl that's on there, it, it eats up all of the soaked wood, and it says that it burns up all of the stone and the soil, and it licks up all of the water too. The fire fell from the sky. I don't know if you've ever been close to a lightning strike. I've been about 25 feet from a lightning strike, and it gets your attention. I don't know how the fire fell from the sky, whether it was lightning or, you know, just like a ball of fire that just descended. I, I don't know, but I'm sure that it got their attention. And, and you know what? It, it, it did get their attention because the text says that, that the fire consumed everything. And we can read, we can see that it, the fire convicted the people of their opinion. And, and it says that the fire brought repentance in the people and they started crying out to God. So the first, you know, when I said the first point, there's, there's one true God, and you have to decide. If you're writing down points, the second one would be something like, um, is that God's fire brought on by the Holy Spirit brings conviction, and it leads us to a time of revival, that we turn back to God. The story ends with the people crying out to the Lord. And these are words the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. These are words of allegiance. They're words of fidelity. They're words of love. It's a fitting climax to this competition. These are words of worship to a God who is worthy of praise and submission. The revival happens in the land. There was a revival fire in their midst, and, and the healing rain to end the drought was close at hand. You know, it only takes a step. It only takes one step to start a change in your life. But it does require a change of mind. You know, I'm reminded of other places in Scripture where fire falls. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 2, Pentecost Day. Fire came down and, and, and just rested above the heads of the believers that were gathered in that room. And the Holy Spirit came in a powerful way and filled them. And they spilled out into the streets. And there was this great revival in the land. And people got saved and came to Jesus. And they repented of their sins. And that continued on. Acts chapter 3, Peter's you know, out and about, and he comes across this lame beggar who's looking for money, and Peter looks him in the eye and says, I don't have any silver, I don't have any gold, but what I have you, I'll give you in the name of the Lord. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up, and he walks. And the people all around are like, what's going on? And they gather around, and Peter preaches this beautiful sermon. And there's two verses, and this is Acts chapter 3, 19 and 20. It's, Peter says, repent then and turn back to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you. Essentially what Peter says is repent. Change your mind. Get rid of the false gods that you've been serving. Repent. Change your mind. And then he says, turn back. Literally turn around. Take a step in another direction. Why? Why would you do this? He tells us, so that your sins may be forgiven. I think that's our story today. It's an Old Testament kind of way to say the same thing. Elijah was trying to convince the people to do the same thing that Peter was trying to convince the people to do, to repent and to turn. So if there's no change of mind, 
then there will be no turning around. And if there's no change of mind and there's no turning around, the Bible's pretty clear that there's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. And in a polytheistic culture, one that pushes uh, religious pluralism, that's a really bold statement for Jesus to make. And we're at risk in our culture right now to stop believing that Jesus is the only way. And so if we are going to be a monotheistic people, then we need to start believing that, and we need to start practicing that. And when the Bible calls us out on our sin, and we feel the conviction in our lives that, you know what, I'm not going the right direction, and we read in Scripture, and Jesus says, the forgiveness is there. I, I came from heaven to earth to save you. My body was broken for you. My blood was poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And I'm calling you to a better way. There's grace for you. There's forgiveness for everybody. But you have to repent. Change your mind. You have to turn. That means you have to take steps in the right direction and start following Jesus. And when you do those things, you step into the forgiveness and the transformation and the new life that's available in Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody gets to the Father except through me. And when we begin to turn and repent, there's a movement in the text. There's this movement from darkness to light. There's this movement from despair in the people to immense joy. There's this movement from death to life. And when we change our mind and we repent, we make those same exact transitions. We can move out of the darkness of our sin and into the light of Jesus. We can move from the despair and the hopelessness that we sink into when we try all these other false gods and they, deliver, they don't deliver anything and we feel like a failure and, and we just keep spinning our wheels. And, but when we change and we move to Jesus, we can move out of that despair and, and into joy. And we can move from certain death if we continue pursuing these false gods to certain life, the newness. That's what a change of mind does. And point number three is simply a promise. Point number three is simply the promise of God that he will send a cleansing and healing rain to fall into your life and to refresh you and to help you grow. And that's a promise. It happened in the text in the coming chapter. But that's the promise that's there for you. There's one true God, and, and you need to decide. And God will send His Holy Spirit, the fire, to bring conviction and repentance and revival in your life, and He will provide the healing and cleansing and refreshing rain that will help you grow. So my prayer for all of us is that the fire would fall from heaven and it would convince each and every one of us that we need to turn back to God, that we need to start living for Him. And, and my prayer is that there would be a revival among us and that it begins in each of our hearts today. People of God said, Amen. Amen.